You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We've recently launched a new project titled the Canadian Coalition to Counter COVID Digital Disinformation. As part of this project, we're hosting a series of town halls. This episode is a recording of our first event focusing on foreign interference and COVID disinformation. For more information about the project and our upcoming events, check us out on Twitter at Counter Disinfo or on the MIGS webpage. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kyle Matthews. I'm Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, we're very pleased today to welcome you for an important uh, event, uh, the Digital Town Hall on the Impacts of Foreign Interference and Disinformation During the COVID Pandemic. Um, this is the first Digital Town Hall of a series that MIGS is organizing to build uh, digital literacy, uh, to mobilize knowledge, and to help Canadians, citizens, um, understand what disinformation is happening online and how it impacts our democracy and how to protect our democracy. Um, we're very lucky today uh, to. Um, have this project um, supported by the Government of Canada, in particular, uh, Department of Canadian Heritage's Digital Citizens Initiative. Uh, we thank you for your support. Um, and we also have a partner, a promotional partner for this event, Disinfo Watch. Uh, so we're very uh, thankful uh, for the support of Disinfo Watch um, in actually sharing this today. And this event will also be filmed um, and shared across social media after the event. Um, so. We actually were joined by three expert speakers and a moderator. So I'd like to first introduce our moderator. Uh, to moderate this event, we have Michael Petru, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Open Canada. Uh, he's also a non-resident fellow at MIGS. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Um, for having me. Uh, after uh, Michael, uh, our first speaker is Alice uh, Soldmayer, who is the Executive Director of Defend Democracy. Um, thank you for joining us, Alice. Followed uh, by Alice, we have Marcus Kolga, who is the founder of Disinfo Watch and is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And our last but not least, we're also joined by Camille Francois, who's the chief innovation officer at Graphica. So with that to do, I'd like to pass the floor to Michael and have you uh, moderate this important event. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Kyle. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and it's an absolute pleasure to have such distinguished panelists to talk about this issue. I want to start with a bit of a, a a bit of a story, I think, which introduces the importance of what we're going to be talking about today. In addition to being a journalist, I'm I'm a historian and at least a fan of reading history. And I was fascinated uh, reading the accounts of my peers, my peers gone by who covered the Vietnam War, talking about uh, circumventing censors and the lengths they would have to go to to get their copy out of the country and, and be able to uh, uh, physically get it to Japan. And then, you know, they would be able to, uh, uh, using what would seem like ancient te technology now, uh, get it back to the United States. And it was a matter of, of, of getting around these sort of barriers. And then years later, I was uh, a reporter myself covering a different conflict uh, in Ukraine uh, in the early days of the invasion there. Uh, it was, in fact, the, the very uh, morning after the so-called uh, Little Green Men had uh, had invaded the parliament, uh, the local government buildings uh, in Simferopol, and there was dueling rallies going on outside, and I was, I was talking to people, and uh, I spoke to one woman who told me the story. Uh, she said that the protesters in Kiev, who were protesting against the, 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 the Russia-friendly um, uh, President Viktor Yanukovych uh, had been drugged, that they had had these you know, hallucinogenics put in their tea, and this is what caused them to rebel. And I started hearing the same story elsewhere, and eventually I asked, you know, why do you think this? They said, well, it's on television. And that's when it occurred to me that, different from my peers gone by, I had no problem getting my stories home. I could flip open my cell phone or if things were really harried, you know, use a satellite phone. And I would be connected back to home office in seconds. I could send photographs. I could send uh, stories. Um, but here's the thing. It, it didn't matter because the game had changed. Uh, the game was now um, uh, disinformation. It was uh, flooding airways with, uh, with fake news. It was casting doubt on real and truthful news. So all the 
all the tactics that journalists were used to in years past, you know, getting rid of, getting past jamming, physically getting your copy somewhere else. It didn't really matter in the same way because uh, we have new barriers and new challenges. And uh, those who want to muddy the waters are, uh, are very, very good at what they do. And uh, as we're going to learn, I think in the next uh, 55 minutes, uh, the impact on our democracy uh, can be and is corrosive. Um, so I'm again, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, with the panelists we have. Uh, I'm going to give each of them maybe five minutes for some opening remarks. Um, then I'll have some questions. Then we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, Alice Stolmeyer, let me start with you. Can you uh, maybe take about five minutes and, uh, and and give us a scope of uh, of the challenges we're facing? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Hi, everyone. So um, I'm going to speak from my viewpoint as a digital practitioner. I'm based in Europe and as a digital strategist working 24-7 at the front line of geopolitics and digital media. Around 2014, I witnessed firsthand the spread of trolls and bots. And I didn't need research to find them. They found me. So by the summer of 2016, I was so concerned about our slide towards a post-truth society, about digital platform developments that I saw, and about hostile interference in our democracies, that I felt that I should do something about it. And the result was Defend Democracy. Defend Democracy's mission is to defend and strengthen liberal democracy against domestic, foreign and technological threats. Now, if we want to tackle disinformation and foreign interference, it is key to make some clear distinctions. So on the one hand, we have the information disorder, which is partly big technology having polarization as their business model. And on the other hand, it's humans innate psychological vulnerabilities to a huge amount of information. So that those two together are the information disorder. Then on the other hand, we have hybrid warfare, which employs political warfare and blends conventional warfare with cyber warfare. And the Kremlin's so-called active measures go way beyond disinformation. Now, both the information disorder and hybrid warfare are threats to our democracies. And both must be addressed, but in very different ways. And that's important. So to tackle the, the, the information disorder, we need the whole range of resilience measures. We need civil society. We need digital literacy. We need independent media. We need platform regulation. We need to humanize technology, etc., etc. Now, hybrid warfare is a different thing. We have foreign election interference, which is targeting a specific event during a limited period. But we also have foreign influence operations, which are ongoing all year long, shaping the overall information landscape. And both of these require deterrence. We must impose costs on malicious and or criminal behavior. Now, the Kremlin's playbook, and by now, by the way, it's no longer just the Kremlin because China is copying parts of the Kremlin's playbook. The Kremlin's playbook is to divide and rule. Social media, because of their business model, is polarizing. Now, these two obviously are reinforcing each other. So it is really, really key that we um, team up to address this. Now, I don't know about Canada, but the EU um, culturally, technologically, etc., mostly follows the American lead with some delay, but the COVID pandemic has accelerated trends. All of these are both foreign and domestic. So we have disinformation campaigns, we have influence operations, we have the infodemic, we have information and culture wars, we have online extremism, we have conspiracy theories, 
And my biggest concern at the moment is so-called QAnon, bringing all these together. Um, other speakers may have more to tell about that. So my strong view is that democracy should team up for several things. They should regulate platforms and hold them accountable for their part of the problem. They should share research and best practices regarding other resilience measures. And they should uh, initiate joint action to prevent, discourage, deter, and respond to malicious hybrid threats. And I think the, in 2018, under the Canadian uh, um, um, presidency of the G7, there was a joint statement about defending democracy against foreign threats. Uh, unfortunately, there hasn't been much follow up yet, but I have good hopes that under the new American administration, there will be a strong follow up. And that's my opening statement. Uh Thank you so much. There's a lot I want to follow up uh, with you uh, when we have Q&As in a second. Um, but right now, let me turn to uh, Marcus. Uh, Marcus, please take a, take a few minutes and give us your introduction. Well, great. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to uh, Migs and to Kyle for inviting me to participate in this important town hall and for the great honor of joining you, Michael, Alice, and Camille today. Um, all of your work on foreign policy and disinformation is incredible, and I, and I bow to it. Um, I'm going to briefly outline some threats we face here in Canada and how the Canadian government is reacting to them or not. Uh, the threat of malign foreign influence, influence and information warfare in this country, Canada, has existed for well over a decade. The Kremlin was paying Canadian cable providers to include Russia Today, RT as it's known, on their services already in 2008, when I first started looking into foreign disinformation. In the post 2014 Crimean invasion era, the Russian government's global information warfare intensified and targeted Canada's federal government and the Ukrainian diaspora for their active support of Ukrainian sovereignty. A Kremlin-directed campaign against Canada's then Foreign Minister, now Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland in 2017, was intended to paint her as a Nazi sympathizer, a narrative that is not coincidentally being echoed and amplified by Canadian QAnon supporters today. More broadly, Critics of the Putin regime are often attacked as being racists, Russophobes, or worse. Last May, a police investigation was opened into a series of death threats sent to me by radicalized Russian nationalists after I published an article that was critical of the Kremlin's distortion and weaponization of World War II history. The Chinese government has also invested heavily in information and influence operations in Canada and has adopted many Russian tactics. In a report I wrote for the McDonnell Laurie Institute in 2019, I likened the threat of Russian disinformation to a virus that was spreading into the domestic information environment where homegrown disinformation would start reproducing organically and independently. At the time, we detected and exposed Kremlin-aligned actors who were promoting anti-vax conspiracies in Canada. With COVID, this problem has become dangerously acute. The pandemic has created a fertile information environment for conspiracy theorists who have emerged from the shadows of the far left and the far right to exploit the uncertainty and the fear that the pandemic has created. Foreign actors and fringe media feed into these heightened emotions by legitimizing and amplifying conspiracies and other disinformation. Conspiracies about the elite, big pharma and government control through the application of health protocols have all fueled the QAnon movement, which is using them to attract new followers, further polarizing our society in the process. The EU's Eastern Stratcom warned last March about the threat of Russian and Chinese governments using the pandemic to advance their interests and using COVID-related payloads to physically make us sicker and erode confidence in our government. This includes Russia's early mask diplomacy in Italy, where the Russian government offered Italians 200 euros each to say something positive of Russia and its mask. China engaged in the same kind of soft power propaganda. My research over the past month has shown that Russian state media and pro-Kremlin social media groups have vigorously amplified COVID-related conspiracies and the anti-mask movement. Thousands of people now rally on weekends in Canadian cities, protesting the quote-unquote tyranny of masks 
which is used to support narratives about the overreach of government control. This has put more stress on the cohesion of our society today than it has ever faced. Facebook groups connected to QAnon before they were deleted and the Canadian Western separatist movement, known rather uncreatively as Wegbit, have also become prolific promoters of COVID-related conspiracies, further pushing their millions of followers away from facts and reality. Per perhaps most dangerous is the legitimacy that some elected public official provides to the claims made by those conspiracy theorists. One independent Ontario member of provincial parliament has been doing just that, suggesting that a recent federal government tender for new COVID quarantine facilities is actually a secret scheme to incarcerate thousands of innocent Canadians. And of course, statements by some US leaders require no additional comment here. Canada's intelligence agencies have warned the Canadian government time and time again since 2016 about this threat. Most recently, the All-Party National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament warned in March that foreign interference represents the greatest threat to Canada's society and democracy, one that is existential. The report cites the Russian and Chinese governments as seeking to undermine our democracy, manipulate our media, and co-opt political leaders and diaspora groups as part of their assault. Yet those warnings have been largely ignored. Over the past 13 months, the Canadian government has not seriously addressed this threat. Ahead of the 2019 federal election, the seeds of a whole of government strategy were planted, but any progress that was made was completely erased and forgotten after the election. This betrayed the Canadian government's narrow understanding of the threat as one limited only to elections, instead of one that threatens our entire democracy and society. While some civil society groups in Canada are monitoring, exposing, and analyzing these assaults in the proper context of information warfare, the overarching lack of government leadership and coordination is directly enabling malign foreign regimes and their agents, proxies, and the groups aligned with them to entrench themselves within the Canadian information environment. Allowing malign actors to spread toxic narratives is making us sicker and more divided than at any other time in history. I'll leave it there for now. Sorry, I, uh, I committed the, the, the muting, uh, uh, the muting error. Uh, Marcus, thank you so much. Um, again, there's a few things I want to return to, uh, but uh, Camille, if I could, uh, if I could ask you to give yes, us your, your opening, um, please. I thought that for this opening, uh, we talk a little bit about what just happened in the U.S. and what we learned from this election season. Um, I, uh, you know, found myself on the front lines of working on disinformation and preventing foreign influence campaigns for this campaign, and it's not the first time that I'm doing that because I started doing this work back in 2015-ish um, ahead of the 2016 election when nobody cared. And that's the first thing that I want to highlight is how different this election cycle in the US in 2020 was from the election cycle in 2016. Um, there are two things that were extraordinarily different. The first one, and I think it's a good one, is how much more prepared overall everybody was to tackle these threats. Um, in 2016, when you think about foreign interference and organized disinformation campaign, most of the major platforms had no terms of services that talked about this threat, uh, no teams who were in charge of detecting these type of threats, and no transparency whatsoever on what they were seeing anyway on their platform. It's a radically different situation than what we just saw in 2020. The large platforms all had specific rules that tackled the different elements that compose this information. Alice talked about like how this is composed of many different things, right? Like at the end of the day, we tend to put everything under the same umbrella, but uh, conspiratorial theories have little to do with uh, organized Russian troll farm campaigns, for instance. And in 2020, there's finally a little bit more mature policies to tackle that. There are also teams who are in charge of detecting these campaigns. And finally, there was a lot of transparency reports for the first time on what the platforms were seeing. It's still not enough transparency. But that enabled people to see and understand what types of campaign were active throughout the election cycle and to get a little bit more granularity, notably on the foreign side. The other thing on the preparedness that was extraordinarily different is the role that the US government played. In 2017, 
when there was the first joint intelligence statement talking about what had happened in the election that had just passed in 2016, the role of foreign interference campaign was really still underplayed by the US government. In the joint ODNI statement, there's only one small footnote that talks about troll farms and that refers to an investigative reporter's work about it. In 2020, it's a very different reality. The US government and the FBI proactively called all major platforms at multiple times throughout the election cycle to warn them and tell them about different foreign influence campaigns so that they could take action. Now, this is overall a fairly good news, and this has resulted in an environment in which in 2020, throughout this election cycle in the US, we have not seen major and effective foreign influence operation on online. Now, it doesn't mean that we haven't seen any of them. It just means that they were much smaller and they were caught much earlier and they were deactivated ahead of time and before they could have an impact. Um, and before we celebrate how, how, how much of a good news that is, I think my first question coming out or almost coming out of this election cycle is, um, how can we ensure that these types of efforts are scaled outside the borders of the US election and are continued in time, right? Making sure that we can continue to have this level of vigilance and preparedness uh, beyond 2020 and beyond the borders of the US. The other thing that I wanted to briefly touch upon is how different the threats were in 2020 than in 2016. Um, the first thing, and, and my co-panelists alluded to that, is in 2016, there was a lot of um, attention and focus on the Russian influence operation. And in 2020, there's a recognition that the, um, the number of foreign actors who use these types of techniques, who use fake accounts, coordinated influence campaign, uh, is vastly broader than just Russia. We have seen some campaigns originating from China, and we have also seen a lot of campaign originating from from Iran. Sometimes they go hand in hand with uh, cyber operations, and sometimes they're simply influence campaigns leveraging social media. Uh, beyond, beyond the sort of broader set of actors that were engaged from a foreign perspective, we've also seen them use new techniques. Uh, over the past year, for instance, I've seen a lot of these foreign actors use AI more systematically in the way they create fake accounts. Specifically, they would use fake pictures, so uh, synthetically generated pictures, fake faces really, to create more fake accounts uh, in a batch and faster. And so there's a little bit again of um, innovation in the types of techniques that we see. Another one that unfortunately was quite um, prevalent in 2020 is the use of unwitting freelancers citizens who end up being roped in uh, into foreign efforts. So for instance, uh, you know, we have had a few cases where American citizens were recruited by Russian operations to create content and write article on behalf of news outlets that were uh, fake and did not exist in the first place, um, which is which is a complicated for a few reasons. The last thing I want to close on, uh, and my co-panelists also alluded to that, is how much in this election cycle we considered the amount, importance, and difficulty of domestic threats. Those can be networks of fake accounts that are actually manned by political operatives in the US. We have seen this a few times. Uh, they can be coordinated violent groups. A lot of the online militia have played a very damaging role in trying to coordinate offline violence using social media linked to the election. And finally, it can be the strength of the conspiracy theory groups, which are now no longer fringe, but really part of the uh, fabric of the online conversation and shaping how the um, public hears uh, about some of the more important issues of our time. So for instance, our team looked into how QAnon grew from a a more a fringe group to a really mainstream uh, force in the public conversation and how much 
all of that unfolded within the context of COVID-19 and how much the online discussions of COVID-19 really strengthened uh, the, the position that QAnon occupies in public discourse. Um, so here are a few uh, provocations and, um, and uh, contrasts from uh, where I'm coming from for us to start the discussion. Wonderful. Camille, thank you so much. Uh, that was excellent. Uh, I have questions for all of you. I want, I want to start off with um, a question for Alice. Alison, it's a question uh, about how we respond to these sort of uh, on an individual level, and then I also want to ask you uh, how government should respond. So you talk about imposing costs. I want, to, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. But let me ask you just on the level of, of, of citizens. Um, we're all facing a, a wave of, of, of disinformation, um, uh, fake news. It's often very difficult to um, tell which is which, especially if you are perhaps young, you, you're children. I know my own, my own kids are now sent online, and uh, they don't have the media literacy to be able to uh, uh, tell what is a reputable source and, and, and what isn't, but many adults don't as well. So I wonder if you just have some, some maybe practical tips on uh, that you could share with us on how how to combat, how to deal, how to detect, how to respond to these sort of uh, disinformation campaigns. Is that something you can touch on? Sure. Um, well, there's a lot of ways in which to to detect, but maybe uh, Camille is in a better position than me to to. Um, uh, to respond that part. Um, however, um, as, a, as a practitioner, as a digital practitioner, um, as a communicator, uh, there are some practical uh, tips and tricks that I have. Um, so for starters, is um, I would really recommend to share correct information over and over again. Truth must be repeated a thousand times to start sinking in. The second one is to amplify authoritative sources like the World Health Organization, like your national health authority, like your government sources. Um, and a warning for those working on uh, strategic communications, for example, for the government or for a province or, or, uh, or whatever, when countering false information, don't repeat it, not even to deny it. If you really must, then use the so-called sandwich technique, which means that you start with the truth, then briefly touch upon whatever it is that you want to refute, and then end again with the truth, because otherwise the um, your readers will the brain will connect two different things like for example if you say oh no no there is no relation between 5g and covid then what the brain does is it thinks like oh 5g covid there must be some kind of relation that's like you know don't think of a pink elephant what your brain does it thinks about the pink elephant so instead of saying Person X says vaccines don't work, but this is a dangerous lie. Say vaccines save lives and person X's lie is dangerous. Then two more practical tips. Don't link to the original content. And if really, really necessary, use a screenshot rather, because otherwise you will help algorithms boost the original content. And a similar advice, don't mention or tag the, the social media account that created or spread the lie, because again, you will help algorithms boost it. Okay, thank you, Alice. The second thing I wanted to draw on is, is more on a governmental level. You mentioned the need to impose costs on actors that engage in the sort of manipulation that we've been talking about. Uh, how do we do that? And what are the what are the practical benefits that you're suggesting would accrue as a result? Well, for the European context, which I know best, uh, I would see 
two different ways and um, in fact uh, I have recommended um, several EU institutions and stakeholders to um, implement a sanctions regime, uh, a cyber sanctions regime to be more specific. And there's, I think in, in current um, EU legislation, there's two ways this can be done. We don't even need to um, uh, reinvent the wheel or start from scratch. Uh, on the one hand, we have the so-called EU cyber diplomacy toolbox, which allows for these kinds of uh, cyber sanctions. In fact, uh, the EU has recently um, started um, the f or, or implemented the first cyber sanctions related to um, cyber attacks. One of them was on the German parliament. And there were a few others. Um, I can't remember all of them. Uh, so the, the cyber diplomacy toolbox is one of them. Uh, but of course, those ca that can only be uh, used when the nature of the disinformation is, let's say, a hack and leak. Um, in when it's about more the um, coordinated uh, influence campaign or disinformation campaign, then that's not an option. However, uh, the EU is currently preparing uh, the, an EU uh, Magnitsky Act that you're probably familiar with. I think Canada also has it and the US and a few other countries. And um, well, this is still being prepared, but one of the uh, elements of the European Magnitsky Act, which is still being drafted as we speak, um, does include an article about, uh, you know, it, because it lists all types of um, human rights abuses, and one of them uh, refers to the, the right of um, uh, freedom of expression and the right to uh, information. And so I think that the this uh, it would be an option for imposing sanctions on coordinated foreign um, influence and, and disinformation campaigns. So perhaps there's a clue there okay. for <laughs> other countries too. And it would, of course, be better it's always better to do things together like they did for the poisoning of the skripals then you know it makes a st much stronger um statement if sanctions or statements or whatever are done uh with a lot of countries together okay thank you um there's a tension that comes up i mean i think much less so when we're targeting a country but when governments respond and impose restrictions or punishment on disinformation, I think for a lot of journalists, warning flags go up. We're uncomfortable with any sort of government restrictions, punishment, deciding what news is fake and what news isn't. Marcus and, and Camille, I'll ask either of you that want to jump in there, but how do we how do we deal with those tensions? How do we reconcile free speech, being able to say whatever you want, um, with combating the danger of uh, disinformation and, and, and fake news, especially, I think it's an easier question when it comes to foreign actors, but there's, there's, there's a tension baked into this dilemma. Do either of you have thoughts on how we, how, how we wrestle with that? Um. I, I can start and then we can go together back and forth. I think um, uh, Alice is right to put the question of sanctions on the table. Uh, and I agree with you that for foreign actors, it's somewhat different. I think there is such a thing as free speech. Uh, and when you are a foreign actor pretending to be a citizen of a different country with the clear intent to influence their election and to interfere you don't have free speech <laughs> that is not that is not uh that is not you know the definition of free speech and so um you know starting by rooting out 
those coordinated and authentic campaigns is the right first step. Um, the other thing, of course, is most major platforms have terms of services. Uh, and they do not allow, for instance, for hatred. Uh, and they can do a lot of different things to better contextualize the information. More often than not, when we think about these disinformation problems, we tend to think about like what needs to, to stay up and what needs to be taken down. In reality, the toolkit that platforms have to address these issues is much wider. They can do design changes to reduce the spread of some of this information. And we've seen the platforms do that in 2020. For instance, Twitter has uh, rolled out a specific feature for the election that encouraged people to um, uh, to, to retweet slower and to add their commentary. Similarly, they tested out features that says, have you really read this article before you want to share it? So there's a bunch of things that you can do from a design perspective. And there's also a lot that you can do to add context. And so, for instance, if you want to share a disputed claim, maybe you're not doing this with malicious intent. Maybe you simply want to share this claim uh, with your family. Perhaps it's something you've read about COVID. It happens to be untrue, but here, uh, a proper label that goes with the claim might be very helpful for you and for the people you're sharing with. So saying this information has been disputed. So I think I would encourage us to think um, you know, beyond this, uh, should this be up or should this be taken down paradigm and consider the wide range of a potential option that can be applied to deal with uh, disinformation and misinformation on platforms. Well, I'll, I'll please go ahead. Great. Um, well, I'm glad Alice brought up uh, the issue of sanctions. Um, I was involved for a number of years in, in helping lead the Canadian campaign for Magnitsky sanctions and the European one, uh, ones in Estonia and Latvia as well. Um, sanctions are a great tool. Um, in this country, we, we adopted them in uh, in 2017. We've, we've rarely used our Magnitsky sanctions legislation, but this is legislation that would allow us to target foreign disinformation agents. That means uh, people like uh, um, Evgeny Prigozhin, who uh, who set up the uh, St. Petersburg troll farm, that, that entire operation. These malicious actors who are using information and information warfare in order to destabilize our democracies and societies. And that, you know, again, that's, that's transformed since 2016, where they were introducing these sorts of narratives and now what they're doing is amplifying and the, and the, and the uh, COVID related uh, conspiracies and certainly ones um, related to QAnon are, are the most dangerous ones. But that again is quite separate from domestic uh, disinformation and, and domestic, uh, um, you know, conspiracy theories and such. And we need to ensure that when we're addressing that the domestic information environment that we are protecting free speech. And I, I completely agree with Camille. Uh, over the years, I've also uh, advocated with the Canadian government that we should be applying uh, those the same sorts of labels as we do to um, television films. You know, when we when we turn on um, uh, HBO or any of these uh, these channels, and we're, we see a program that's meant for adults, there's often a label. You know, uh, it's meant for an audience that's 14 years or older, 18 years or older, that it contains violence, um, nudity, that sort of thing. There's no reason why we can't apply that to state media uh, channels like RT. Um, and others, in, including social media. And I think Twitter started doing this quite effectively, applying labels to um, any sort of tweets that have been debunked by civil society or you know, Twitter itself as being uh, uh, false news. So applying those labels is an important uh, uh, thing that we can start doing with domestic um, disinformation. But I, I think all of this comes down to um, citizen resilience and making sure that uh, Canadians themselves, or anybody in uh, any citizens of Western societies, are aware of uh, of what they're viewing and and the the information that they're consuming. So projects like the ones that uh, Migs is involved in, uh, Journalists for Human Rights, have been um, uh, certainly uh, trying to promote digital literacy. Um, because look, uh, you know, throughout this COVID uh, crisis, and we've all encountered sort of older relatives and such. Um, you know, the uncle that shares that. Um, that that hoax about a COVID cure, you know, gargling with hot water or drinking lots of hot soup. Um, you know, this is a generation that comes from an era where all news was trusted. Um, you could go to a newsstand, pick up a magazine or a newspaper, and whatever you saw there, 
you could believe it because it was established media. There were there were processes in place, and there were professional journalists. And nowadays, I think that same sort of mindset is being applied uh, to uh, to social media as well by these same these that same generation. And we need to raise awareness that um, and and educate um, viewers and users of social media that uh, when they do view. Um, any sort of, you know, if they see uh, a headline that seems very sensational, that they should be checking the source of that. They should be uh, checking the claim. I mean, it's a, it's a simple search that can be done online, you know, whether it's Google or another search engine, um, to ensure that the, the news that they're seeing is, is indeed uh, factual. And nowadays it's easier, more, it's easier uh, today more than ever to, to do that. So, you know, these sorts of things are, are uh, you know, we need to ensure that um, our uh, that our uh, citizens and and people are have the digital literacy skills um, that they need to to critically view uh, media, and that's that's the first line of defense against uh, disinformation. Okay. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, I would say to uh, everybody in the uh, in the audience who's watching this online that we are taking questions, and I would uh, I would encourage you to write them uh, in the. Uh, the chat box. I will. I will pick these and uh, and put them to our panelists. Uh, in the meantime, Marcus, I, I want to push you on uh, on one issue. You talked about citizen resilience, uh, and you also mentioned some of the pressures that uh, diaspora communities in Canada are are, are facing from foreign actors. Um, what obligations does Canada have, and what options does Canada have to protect its citizens who are facing these sort of pressures from abroad, from country, their countries of origin or the countries of their parents' origin? Well, it's uh, an excellent question and a timely question. I think this was just brought up in Parliament yesterday about um, uh, intimidation campaigns that certain diaspora groups, certainly the Chinese diaspora, um, is, is facing in Canada today and, and what we can do about it. Um, I, I think there are a number of things. I mean, we can look to Australia. Australia has adopted a, a foreign agents registry. This requires anyone that is advocating on behalf of the, uh, the Chinese government uh, to register with the government. Um, and this is something that we should uh, certainly look into. Uh, there was a suggestion yesterday in Parliament about creating a, a hotline. Um, this is a pretty good idea. I think um, educating those diaspora groups as to what threats look like and perhaps how they can address them, that would be important. Um, I mean, I've, with the work that I do, I, I, I face uh, attacks from, from various different trolls whenever I, I publish a piece. Um, but I've, I've faced death threats, uh, serious death threats, about three times over the past decade. Um, and the first two times, I mean, I, I called the, the federal police, the RCMP here in Canada, and they didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, they suggested that I they, that I contact local authorities. Local when I contacted the local authorities, the local authorities told me to contact the RCMP. When I called the RCMP, then they said, "Well, you know, maybe you should contact CSIS and CSIS." Well, they don't get back to you. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we need to uh, first of all, uh, the government needs to acknowledge that this is a problem, that we do need to protect um, critics of these regimes, whether it's in Iran, China. Russia. Um, we need to acknowledge the fact that those critics are being threatened. We need to uh, recognize that those diaspora are, are being, facing intimidation from those regimes. Um, and then we need to start building from there. And, you know, again, a, a hotline, something like that may be a good first, first step, but we need to start taking this, uh, this problem seriously because it is a problem and it's affecting our freedom to express ourselves in this country. So, um, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I, have a, uh, I, have a, I have a question from, uh, from Migs, um, and maybe I'll put it to uh, uh, Camille if I can. Uh, why are Western societies playing catch-up, and why are they slow to respond? Uh, Camille, I'll put that to you first, but then I, I certainly welcome uh, responses from Alice and Marcus as well. Uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I wrote a very boring and long paper on this about why do we have a blind spot on foreign interference on social media, which has been published in French uh, in a journal called Erodote, which I'll be happy to share. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And one of the ones I'd like to highlight is Western societies tend to have a very 
technocentric definition and approach of cybersecurity. And if you look, for instance, at the way most governments and most social media platforms have defined security uh, and cybersecurity specifically before 2016, it's really focused on protecting the servers, protecting from intrusion to technical systems. And that really wasn't um, a conception of cybersecurity that other adversaries have. So if you look, for instance, at the Russian conceptions of cybersecurity, they've always included the information sphere. They've always included uh, information operation. And so I think like one of the key reasons why there was this big catch up moment is because Western societies were um, too enamored by their very technocentric uh, approach of defining cybersecurity, which left a big blind spot uh, open for anything having to do with information operation and influence. Uh, so I would start there. Wonderful. Um, okay, we have a question from Facebook here that I'm going to rely to relate to everybody. Uh, what does one do uh, when government or elected officials spread disinformation? Uh, I think that applies. That let's let's. It's a broad question, but I, I think it applies in, in in Canada as well. Um, I'll throw that open to all three of you. Who wants to step in? Alice, do you want to take? You want to take? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, from a very practical point of view. Um, it, as, I, as I said, it's really important, first of all, not to repeat the lie. Um, I know that for a, a reporter that might be slightly different because they do report on news, but even the way you report on news um, should, I think, be adapted to the current um, era of disinformation. So instead of saying, um, Trump says this or that and just repeat whatever he says or Orban says or Putin says, uh, you can frame it in a different way, a more responsible way, which still can be correct journalistic reporting. Uh, and you can say, well, uh, politician X claims or falsely claims this or that. And you, 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 you give some context and so that's, I think, uh, for, uh, for reporters, an important um, skill to uh, report in the, in the current era. And for regular social media users, as I already said, it's really, really important not to um, react on your first impulse. So even if you're outraged by the ridiculous claims, don't uh share it saying that this is ridiculous because again the only thing you're doing is you help the algorithm boost it so the best thing i would say is just don't give it any oxygen yeah if, if i may marcus yeah go ahead please yeah um, i would suggest i mean again during the, the COVID crisis we, we faced this i mean i was sent all sorts of messages about these hoax cures and you, you saw people sharing these. I found that um, that one of the best ways to address that is by simply, you know, especially if you see someone you know sharing this information, this is for individuals or, who are using social media, is to uh, directly contact that person. And, and you know, usually if you if you see something that you know is disinformation or, or or it contains some sort of falsehood, you can search it up and, and there's certainly, there's lots of debunking happening right now. Um, and you can you can usually find a link and then just quietly send that person that link. Um, and and the hope, with the hope that maybe they'll remove the, the post that they've, uh, they've put up there. As far as, um, you know, mainstream media and such goes, you know, again, there's, there is lots of debunking happening, which is very positive. I find that one of the most important things that that we can do in civil society is exposing um, this disinformation and and you know looking at EU versus Disinfo, which is uh, a, an organization agency within the uh, EU's Eastern Stratcom. They do this very effectively. When they detect disinformation, they post it. And that, you know, that sort of sunshine in a in a controlled environment is very important. Uh, 
to bring bring that sort of um, information, disinformation, those attacks to light, so that uh, media and certainly our, our governments and uh, and officials have a resource to uh, to look into any sort of claims that are being made. Okay, let me let me dig a little bit deeper in that idea of civil society because we also we we do have a question uh, also from Meg saying. Uh, how can Canadian organizations and think tanks collaborate more efficiently to counter digital disinformation? Uh, is there more about the roles of those sort of organizations, think tanks, other civil society building groups? How do they cooperate? What sort of support do they need? Uh, how effective can they be? Um, Alice, Camille, Marcus, any, any, any or all of you want to take that on? I can start with this helpful. I think that on this specific disciplines, a lot of think tanks, a lot of researchers, a lot of people in academia have done a really wonderful job really uh, detecting in context, like putting in context this disinformation campaigns. Um, if you look, for instance, at the last election cycle in the US um, or at large scale information operations around the world, really, for instance, it becomes very clear the role that investigative reporters have played in exposing those campaigns. I think at times we think that only governments or platforms are in a position to detect and expose these campaigns. And that's not true. Uh, and this is not really what the history and the data has proven. Even if you go back to the Russian Internet Research Agency, it was initially exposed by investigative journalists in Russia who went there and worked undercover and then investigated by um, groups like Global Voices in civil society who took the time to really unravel this network uh, and who creatively used Google Analytics code to show how wide it extended. So I think there's absolutely a critical role for civil society to play, and it's a role that it's been playing since the beginning of um, of, of everybody studying how disinformation campaigns spread online and on social media. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Marcus, I wanna circle back uh, to a question uh, or an issue you brought up. You talked about, this, this relates to government responses, specifically here in Canada. You talked about warnings that uh, Canada has been got has been receiving, uh, specifically about Chinese uh, disinformation and, and, and interference pressures, um, and you described a, a reluctance to act to act on it. Can you go into more detail and perhaps uh, analyze to the extent that that's true? Why what, why you think it is? What's what's what, what's going on here? Well, uh, it's, that's a good question. I've been asking that exacting question. Um, for for a number of years, uh, you know, starting in in 2014 when we saw the the Russian government really amplify their their uh, information warfare uh, game, and and certainly after 2016, um, we, we haven't done too much. Um, we have certainly haven't done enough. Ahead of the last federal election, we um, we did put um, some new groups and policies in place to protect the election. Um, there was a, a task force that was set up uh, with uh, all the heads of the um, Canadian intelligence agencies, including glo and global affairs as well, that was tasked with uh, monitoring disinformation. That was a great start. Um, there, was a, there was another task force that was created uh, to inform all the political parties if they detected any sort of disinformation. These were very good beginnings to address the problem. Um, but like I said in my opening remarks, after the election, literally the next day, all of that disappeared. The only thing that, that remains right now, which is very good, is a group in, within Global Affairs, which is Canada's foreign ministry. Um, there's a group in there that detects, uh, it monitors and analyzes foreign disinformation uh, and sends it to, um, to the G7. But as far as uh, Canada is concerned, um, none of that information sees, sees the light of day. So at, at the moment, aside from heritage uh, and the funding that we're providing, there's nothing in place. And, and it's curious that, it's, that, um, that that task has fallen to heritage. Uh, our heritage ministry in Canada, of course, um, looks at culture um, and, and those from, looks at this from that angle. But this, is what, this problem is really a public safety issue and it's in its and it's the Minister of Public Safety that's who needs to be looking into this because those this information it, the information attacks and the influence campaigns are attacking our our whole of democracy and our whole of society and so while it's good that there's some funding being made available to look into it um, you know this this it requires a far more robust 
um, response and it needs a whole of government response. And we should be looking at other governments that have done this effectively. Taiwan does this extremely effectively. Um, it's living next to this, this giant that is, and it is constantly under attack, but they've managed to um, thwart a lot of those, uh, the, the influence campaigns and disinformation that, that target it through a whole of government uh, response. That means the government is working very closely with the civil society uh, to detect and push back on these attacks. Estonia is very effective. Um, uh, Israel is also being extremely effective. Uh, and like I said, in the EU with the Eastern Stratcom, I think the European Union is is light years ahead of Canada. This is, you know, these are countries that we should look to and use as models. Right now, we have nothing in place um, to uh, to defend ourselves against these sorts of attacks. Thank you. I have a, a question from from Lauren here, which I'd, I'd like to put all put to all three of you. And, and this was brought up in, in in opening remarks. I mean, COVID really has intensified a lot of these issues uh, over the last almost year now. Um, and exposed, perhaps exposed weaknesses and given us a sense of where things might be developing in the future. Uh, I'll, I'll use Lauren's phrase in here. She says, Lauren Salim, she says, what has COVID taught us about heightened dangers of foreign interference? And as we look to the future, what can we expect to see more of from malign foreign actors? I'll, I'll put that to all three of you here. It's, uh, go ahead. Alice, do you want to take that? Yes. Um... What I think is that uh, the pandemic has increased or, or accelerated uh, some trends that were already visible and that I had hoped we would have a little bit more time to uh, address. Um, and these are different uh, threats to democracy. It's really a cross-cutting issue. So on the one hand, there's the, the foreign threats. On the other hand, it's the domestic threats. And then the third one is the technological threats. And so um, geopolitics play a role. Um, domestic, um, just criminal behavior, or uh, on the other hand, um, a more social uh, sociological explanation of, of people trying to uh, together um, find meaning or find answers on what what is this weird virus and what should we do and this is this is in in a, in a way also a normal reaction um, but not not always very helpful as we have seen uh, and then there's the te te technological um, threat um, to democracies, which is which is what we have also seen, like the increasing importance of um, uh, or uh, the increasing amount of time that we spend online and the increasing digitalization of our lives. Um, so I'm afraid that all uh, these threats to democracy have have only intensified and accelerated, and I would say, um, unfortunately, I I see that uh, my expectation is that this will continue, and so this is only a, a more um, reason for democracies to really get even much more serious uh, and urgent about tackling this and together. Thank you. Uh, as Alice mentioned, there's, uh, we don't have as much time as, as, as a subject uh, warrants. Uh, I don't know if there's enough hours in the day given uh, the way the world is uh, developing in, uh, in regards to this, this threat and this challenge to democracies everywhere. But we do have a couple minutes left and I would like to use that time uh, just to throw it back to the panelists, do you have any very brief con concluding remarks that you'd like to uh, to highlight before before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, I think that the question on lessons from COVID was a really an excellent one. And you know, thinking about it, I was thinking there are two main things that we're learning. The first one is something about cadence. Um, 
we have tended to think that foreign um, interference was a thing of elections, right? Like we should worry about coordinated influence campaigns when there are elections. And that's not true. Uh, these uh, foreign interference campaigns, information operations happen all year round and focus on large scale geopolitical events. They have always focused on that. This is why, for instance, we see a lot of those around events like the World Cup. And I think in many cases, um, or, or, you know, the Olympics, right? Um, in many cases, COVID is also a reminder that when there is a high stakes conversation, when there is a large scale geopolitical event, then we can expect information operations. The cadence is not just about election, it's in every, uh, it's going to be an all year round issue. Uh, and therefore, if we want to tackle it seriously, we have to tackle it seriously in continuity, not just, you know, a week before an election and a week after an election. The second thing I think is a good um, call out about the actual harms that these types of campaigns can do. When you think about it in the context of the pandemic, the harms can be really real and have, for instance, a large scale impact on public health. And that's, I think, the second thing that we're really learning about these campaigns in the context of COVID. Well, I'd, I'd quickly just add to that, that I think that we really need to respect the threat. Um, and Camille's absolutely right. I mean, this is not just, we can't look at the issue of information warfare in the silo of an election. This is a whole of democracy. This is a whole of society problem. We need to use the proper, lexic proper lexicon as well. This isn't just, you know, when we're talking about foreign disinformation, it's not meddling. It's not mischief. It is warfare that these uh, these regimes are engaging in, and we need to respect that it, before we, you know, develop some sort of a, a strategy against it. And I just want to mention what does keep me up at night, and certainly my research over the past couple of months has shown this. And this is going back to the previous question: is um, the rise of these conspiracy theories uh, and these conspiracy theorists like QAnon. Um, there are several foreign linked platforms, one specifically here in Canada that was identified by the US State Department, Global Research, that has been doing this work for years. Um, you know, I've been raising red flags about it, and I'm glad that it's gaining um, some, uh, uh, it's gained some attention internationally. But these platforms do legitimize these conspiracy theories, and these conspiracy theories are specifically targeting our government, our society. They, they are intended to erode trust in our, our, our elected officials, in the COVID context, they're they're uh, designed to erode trust in uh, the health of, uh, the health officials and the health protocols they they put in place, and ultimately they're 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 there to divide us and split us apart. And if we don't address that problem soon enough, um, you know, and and immediately we're we're in we're in for a lot of trouble. Especially, you know, we've seen what's happened in the U.S., but that's that's coming to Canada very soon. Yeah, that's. Um that that's also what i what i'm observing qanon and similar conspiracy theories have also arrived in europe uh even in my native country the netherlands which uh is known for being very um literate um uh, open tolerant and so on um over the past I would say year, and this has been very much accelerated since uh, the, the COVID pandemic, we have seen a lot of social unrest. And um, this has been um, uh, grown also with the help of social media. And I want to um, join what Marcus just said. It's really, really important uh, as, as a closing remark, it's really important that we um, try to prevent silo thinking and that it's also, I think, important that we um, meet each other offline so that different people, organizations, governments, etc., precisely because this should be an all of society approach, uh, that these different groups and stakeholders meet and that we're not sticking to our own, uh, you know, either data privacy agenda or 
national security agenda or, or whatever agendas there may be, but that we really um, come together as a society, um, not just within our own country, but also um, as countries, as democracies together. And that's my big hope for the coming years. And um, well, why not um, uh, hope for a, a G7 summit or a democracy summit that um, is hopefully in the making. Wonderful. Alice, thank you so much. Uh, Marcus and Camille, thank you uh, as well. Uh, I, I'm absolutely uh, uh, thrilled to have such a rich conversation with you. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for, for hosting this. Uh, I know our guests are as well. Um, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity, and, and I'd like to turn over to Kyle. Kyle, I believe you have a few, a few words you'd like to say as we wrap up. Thank you, uh, Michael. I just uh, would like to thank uh, everybody for joining us today. Um, so Michael, Marcus, Alice, Camille, um, it's very important for us to hear what you have to say. You're working at the front lines of this. You have this expertise. Um, so I, I, I hope that this session, uh, which is a first of many series, will help to build knowledge in Canada and will connect Canadian organizations with outside experts. Um, so I really want to thank you for this. I'd like to thank uh, um, the Department of Canadian Heritage for, for funding this project and these digital roundtables. And I'd like to thank DisinfoWatch for being a partner. Um, with that being said, thank you very much. And I look forward to collaborating with you in the future.